Acts 14, starting with verse 19. So what we saw the last time was we started chapter 14, and we left off with Paul and Barnabas in Lystra, where a lame man was healed, and then they tried to get a handle on an out-of-control situation as a result. And today we're just going to finish up chapter 14. Verse 19. One verse. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Well, this, this deserves a little backdrop to explain what was going on, because it's pretty, pretty harsh to read in that one verse. Where do we leave off? Well, Paul, le- Paul heals a lame man in Lystra. The Lystrians go wild with, with glee and excitement. And they think the gods have visited them in the form of Paul and Barnabas. Actually, they call them Hermes and Zeus. So the Lystrians bring out the garlands. They bring out the oxen to be sacrificed. They, um, Paul and Barnabas can st- scarcely restrain these people from worshiping them. As true men of God, they know they don't deserve the worship. The worship should go to God. And today you see the troublemakers stir up dissent because that's what troublemakers do. That's their job description. They stir up dissent. They come from Antioch and Iconium, and they come to Lystra to get the crowd to turn on Paul and Barnabas. Paul is then stoned by the same mob that was just worshiping him. One minute you're the greatest, and the next minute you're yesterday's leftovers. Welcome to ministry. What happened to the welcoming committee? What happened to the garlands? What happened to the applause? What happened to the the sacrifices, the praise, the adoration? Where did it go? Well, it also happened to Jesus. He was adored by the crowd, if you remember the triumphal entry. And in the same week, the crowd spit on him. They mocked him, and they called for his blood. Crucify him, crucify him, they shouted. Well, see, Jesus was ambivalent to the crowd. Yes, he ministered to the crowd. Yes, he fed them. But even if you read the book of John, he knew a lot of these people were just using him. Jesus really, when he ministered to the crowds, he really focused on individuals and how they could change their lives and how they could turn towards God. So there was an ambivalence there. Unfortunately, in ministry, sometimes today... Uh, many play to the crowd, not only, but only to their own detriment. You see, as the crowd vacillates, well, we like you one day. Well, we don't like you the other day. Well, we like what you're doing here, and then the next day, well, we don't like what you're doing. As there's vacillation with the crowds, and you follow the crowds, and you take public opinion polls, you're going to make poor decision. There's a term, a legal term, called mob mentality. Because a bunch of people start doing maybe a crime, If there's a mob around, they'll start doing the crime too. And normally, maybe if they were alone, they wouldn't do that. But it's called mob mentality. So not to worship or follow the crowd. Because crowds are fickle. You see it in Hollywood all the time. They love the stars, then they hate the stars. And a lot of these stars will admit they have several psychologists because it's hard for them emotionally to deal with this kind of love-hate relationship. You see it in politics. We love that candidate. We hate that candidate. We love that. It just goes back and forth. It's because people are sinners, and and this is what they do. And people can be indecisive. People can work off their emotions. I just want to read a few verses from Romans 3, starting with verse 9. Romans 3, 9. And it's under the heading, conclusion, all all are guilty before God. And what Paul does is he reads, he quotes actually several different psalms and compiles them into one uh, point that he's trying to make here. 
Verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And when they make that statement, Jews and Greeks, he means everybody in the world. There was kind of a, a dichotomy there between two groups of people, but it encompassed everyone. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I got news for you. There's something in there for all of us. It describes sinners, and that's what all of us are. And next week, I'm going to talk more about grace, because in the Council of Jerusalem, you can see the concept of grace come forward. How, do we, how are we saved? We're saved by grace. And that's the beauty of grace. We all fit here. We've all done this at some point or another. But because of grace through Jesus Christ, we're saved. That's beautiful. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But people are like this. And what's probably even more grievous to God is not so much these Lystrians, because these were idol worshippers. These were, they were ignorant. They didn't know much, you know, they didn't know any better. What's most grievous to God is when this kind of stuff happens among his own people. Moses and the prophets, great miracles were wrought through Moses and the prophets, and people still rebelled against those leaders. If you look at even Moses' sister, Miriam, she rebelled against her own brother, and she got leprosy. And Moses had to beg the Lord to take the leprosy away from her. That's how much the Lord doesn't like this kind of stuff that happens among his own people. And it happens in the church. The best counsel I ever got from my pastor was, he said, take both praise and criticism in stride. Don't be swayed by the crowds. He said, stick to the word of God. And that can be difficult because we are emotional beings. We sometimes react to other people's feelings about us. A person who could high-five me and bear-hug me in the hallway and say, great message, could later turn on me and tear me apart. If I don't uh, solve their entrenched family problems that have been in the making for years, if I have the audacity to hold a person to scripture and correct sin, or when I teach a biblical doctrine that goes against the person's theological leaning. I'll tell you a story. Um, probably nobody here has any idea who I'm talking about, which would be good. But a gentleman came into the fellowship sometime back, and he, he, he had a theological peeve, a leaning. And he gave me some books to read, and I read them. They were good books. And he had some meetings with me, and he expected me to turn this church from a Calvary, which really just means you're following the Bible, to a particular denomination. And when I didn't do it, he actually left. You know, can you believe that? But this is the way people are. Or when I make an unpopular decision. In Paul's case, these people had equally ridiculous reasons. They didn't like his preaching about messianic fulfillment. And it turned to hatred. In my case, sometimes I scratch my head and say, wait a minute, didn't you just say last week that I was the greatest pastor? <laughs> or I'm like family, or this is the greatest church you've ever been to? See, with the crowds, it's easy to fall from grace because of capriciousness and a whimsical behavior. And you could be great one minute and become road dirt the next. All right, So you can't follow the crowds. But an important point comes out of all this. Here's the question. Who are we trusting in? Are we trusting in the crowds? Are we trusting in public opinion polls? 
Are we going to vote for an official because everybody else is doing it? And I've seen that. Are we going for popularity? Are we going to trust man or are we going to trust God? Now, most people would say, well, I trust God. Well, but just really think about it. Let's search our hearts. Be careful who you align yourself with. See, the Israelites often trusted in the Syrians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and it wasn't pleasing to God. You could tell from the scripture that he wasn't fond of that. He wanted to be the one that Israel would would, uh, lean on and trust in. But they started making alliances with other nations that they perceived were powerful. It wasn't pleasing to God. You saw it with Israel. You see it with the United States. Remember um, some years back, we supported the Taliban in Afghanistan because of the Russian Empire was expanding. They were taking over all of Eastern Europe, and then they started going into the the Islamic-dominated countries, and we were concerned, and rightly so. So we supported the Taliban, gave them the Stinger missiles. They took down the helicopters, 100 you know, high-tech Russian helicopters, and that turned the tide on the Cold War, that one particular proxy battlefield. A few years later, it wasn't long after that, that we were bombing Afghanistan and the Taliban, the ones that we had made alliances with, weren't we? Because you know, a lot of their support were behind al-Qaeda and the destruction of the United States. And now we're friends with Afghanistan again. It's like we're kind of, you know, we can't make up our minds. Germany and Russia, World War II, we aligned ourselves with the Russians against Germany and the Nazis. And then after, the, after uh, everything settled down, we started aligning ourselves with Germany. Tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev, against the Russians, right? Alliances are constantly shifting. If you follow military, you see that all the time. Iran, Iraq, always shifting alliances. Back to the point, many gravitate to those who are strong for security and survival, whether consciously or unconsciously. Ed Welch wrote a book, and if you have time to read it, he wrote several books, but one was really good. And the title is, When People Are Big and God is Small. This book addresses peer pressure. It addresses fear of man. Oh, no, I I follow God. Yeah. But when you start reading that book, you say, gee, I do that. And you see how your alliances are, are more with strength and not necessarily with God. If we as God's children rely on anyone except God for security, he will allow our alliances to maybe turn on us or to dissipate, as with Israel. How are we any different? God doesn't change. He, the way he thinks doesn't change. The only one you can know for sure who will stay with you is God himself, because his motto is uh, Deuteronomy 31.6 in the Old Testament and repeated in the New Testament Hebrews 13:5. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise that you can go to the bank with. You know, you, whether it's a 401k or retirement plan or whatever you have, what you can take to the bank and definitely get interest on, guaranteed, is that verse. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Some think about or think about some of the alliances in your life, in my life. Think about them. Who, you, who do you align yourself with? Are they holy alliances? Or are they unholy alliances? Only you know. Is blood thicker than water? It shouldn't be. I notice retrospectively in my life any alliances I've made for security. And God removed them. Not because he's mean, but because God is jealous for me. David said, you know, God, you're my rock. You're my strength. You're my strong tower. And he wants that for all of us. And he will not be second place to any other God. If he loves us, he wants us to be, he wants us to have him first place in our life. 
Now, that doesn't mean I don't have friends, but God is the only one who can truly bail me out of serious trouble. Not Pastor Lloyd, not Pastor Anthony, not my elders, not my board. Wonderful men, they help me to make good decisions. Uh, They give me wisdom, they give me strength, they pray for me. But God is the only one who who can be with us all the time and bail us out of serious issues. And the question I would ask you is, is that your life? Is that your heart? Are you trusting too much in worldly alliances, or are you trusting in God? You see, in Paul and Barnabas' case, always bringing it back to the Scripture, these guys were right on. Because when the crowds were, were you know, it was adulation and, and excitement for Paul and Barnabas after this healing, they could have said, hey, we could retire here. This is a good deal, you know? But they didn't. They said, no, you can't worship us. Worship is, is, is for God himself. What if they aligned themselves with the crowd? What if they said, hey, this is a good thing? And then the crowd turned on them. It would be even worse and more emotionally devastating for these men. They said, our alliance has to be with God. This is wrong. And history bore out that, you know what? They were able to move on and continue ministry without too much of a hitch because their alliance was with God. Verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, now Paul, he's been stoned, uh, left for dead, and the disciples gathered themselves around him. He rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. I want to quote a scripture. Boy, these guys have been through a lot. And it's pretty amazing. Charles Spurgeon said this, Most of the grand truths of God have to be learned by trouble. They must be burned into us with the hot iron of affliction. It reminds me of a branding of an animal. Otherwise, we shall not truly receive them. No man is competent to judge in matters of the kingdom until first he has been tried, since there are many things to be learned in the depths which we can never know in the heights. Pretty profound. Here you get to see the character and the resolve of both the disciples and Paul, a man who was just stoned and left for dead. Start with the disciples. They didn't panic and leave Paul lying there. Think about that. Many would have. It's quite possible, I'm not going to say this dogmatically, but it's quite possible that they gathered around him and with fervent prayer they brought him back. It's possible he was stoned to death and with much prayer the Lord heard their prayers and brought him back. James 5.16 says, The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Part of the United States Army Ranger Code states, and I looked it up, I will never leave a fallen comrade behind. I will never leave a fallen comrade behind. If you're in the military, you might have heard that. Now, these disciples were in a hostile, frightening situation. They probably didn't have weapons, and they weren't brave commandos in a temporal sense. But they refused to leave their leader behind. How would we fare? Have we ever abandoned a righteous cause because it gets too hot? It gets too tough? When the going gets tough, does Wayne get going? When life gives uh, Arnie a lemon, does Arnie make lemonade out of that lemon? You guys are easy pickings because you're in the front. (laughs) Would we stand by someone in righteousness even though the odds or the majority are against them? Claude McDonald states, a lot of quotes today, he said, sometimes the majority simply means all the fools are on the same side. It's pretty profound.
the temptation would be to run and not to stay on the sinking ship. Let me get a little personal here. Two years ago, a little more than two years ago, the, the, prior, the former pastor left this church. We had no pastor. We all could have fled. We all could have panicked and left. But you know what? We said, wait a minute. The Lord has established us here. We, uh, we're, we're opening up our Bibles. We're in fellowship. We've made some ties. Uh, we want to be changed by the Spirit of God. You know what? Let's, let's pray. Let's fast. Let's seek the Lord, and we'll see what, what he'll do. We're a viable church. Okay, because we didn't run away. We didn't panic. What we did was we hung together and against the odds, we pulled together. Many said that's that place is going to dissipate. I know I can tell you this two years later, but we're, we're, we're a solid functioning, solvent church. God is good. I mean, I'm not going to take the credit. I'm just one part. You know, I asked for applause for the children's ministry before. That's that's a, one of the backbones of, of our church is that children's ministry. So this is a pretty awesome thing. So you could see on a personal level that it happened right here two years ago. On to Paul. Let me explain stoning a little bit. Um, I've never been stoned. I've been hit in the head with fists. I've never been hit in the head with a big rock. But basically what happens is you, you get a person, you kind of corral them, and you pick up stones, and really you're going for the head. You're going for the, you know, the vital part to kill the person. That's what stoning is. And you, the guy keeps getting pelted by these uh, people around him until he loses his life. It's a pretty awful way to kill somebody. I'd like to ask anybody here, have you ever been hit with a rock in the head, concrete, a brick? Probably, hopefully, most of you say no. Maybe some of you had. No doubt that, and listen, I like to do this, and some of you are wincing, but I like to say, hey, when we go through the scripture, what was it like? What was this person going through? I don't just want to, let's read the scripture and go home. No. I want you to understand what was going on at the time, because this is history. You study World War II. You study the Civil War, European history. Well, this is history, too. What was he going, what was happening in his mind at the time? Well, no doubt, uh, he probably emerged from the rubble, you know, just dirty, a bloody mess, probably swollen, pelted. It probably wasn't a pretty picture. But what did he do? Oh, I'm out of here. I can't take this ministry stuff. I've got to get out. This is, this is just too brutal. I've got to do something easier. Maybe, you know, stick with tent making or something. You know? But he didn't quit. He kept on going. He gets up. He goes into the city. And the next day, he goes to preach the gospel to the city of Derby, which is about 40 miles away. I've got to tell you, I want to meet this guy. <laughs> you know, I can't wait to meet him and just kind of pick it. I'm sure there's a lot of people. I'll be in line. But you, you kind of want to pick the guy's brain. Man, what were you thinking at the time? Did you ever think of quitting? Probably did, but he didn't. He followed. He stayed the course. What an example of devotion. Do we have the same devotion that Paul did? How many of us could say yes? How easy is it for us to give up the task that God has given us? Because everybody here, whether you realize it or not, whether you've prayed about it and got an answer or not, you all have spiritual gifts, and you all have a task that the Lord has set before you. How easy is it for us to give up that task? Some of us probably are more determined to get a high score in Xbox than we are in finishing the task that God has given us. Because we all are determined. There's a lot of stubborn people here. And let me tell you something. I'm the head stubborn person. And if I got something in my head and I want to do it, it takes a lot to deter me. But some of us have worldly interests that we, we do, that we, that we seek, and you can't move us. And then when it comes to God's interests, we're like, that's ah, too hard. We're, it's backwards, guys. It's backwards. It's wrong. Verse 22, so it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. 
I like that. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. When you sign up to serve the Lord, make sure you count the cost because it's not easy. There was a, a, a quote, and I, I've been hearing this lately, and it's, a, it's a, a more of a recent quote. And I said, wait a minute, that sounds a little far-fetched. And you know, I research everything. Before I say it from the pulpit, let me Google it and see where it came from. Well, the article is from the conservative voice, a man named T. Weber. And he, the quote is this, 1,500 pastors leave the pulpit every month due to spiritual burnout or moral failure. I find that number astounding but believable. He also says 4,000 new churches open each year, but 7,000 close. Even if you're not good at math, you realize that's a net loss of 3,000 per year. Wow. That number is astonishing. You talk about spiritual opposition. But these disciples were the pioneers in that fight. The pioneers in that fight. Paul was a picture of moving towards the goal and not being deterred. He also led with courage. Paul had a lot of good qualities. Paul and Barnabas, and I don't want to take away from any of the other disciples, but I'm just trying to focus on Paul here because uh, he, he was stoned. He took the heaviest hit. It doesn't really say what happened to the other guys. But he led with courage. And I could see him saying, hey, guys, ministry is, is tough, but see, I'm right here with you. You saw what I was just through, but I'm here right, right here with you. And I bet that really comforted them and, and strengthened them and exhorted them. He was just kicked out of some of these cities. He was stoned. He was left for dead. And at peril to his own life, he went back there to strengthen them. You know, there's a lot of stories about soldiers who, and I, I'm going to say that the majority of soldiers are brave, brave men and women. Now, there are occasions where in, in the heat of battle, the fight or flight, somebody will panic and they'll flee instead of staying with their comrades. But I'm going to say that the majority of them are courageous men and women, and that's why they get into that field. But I can, I can liken the spiritual battle to a, a physical, temporal battle. Some soldiers flee. And, you know, the, the mortars come in and the bullets start flying and they, they take cover and they, they um, you know, they, they look to preserve their own lives. But a lot of heroic soldiers, and you hear all these stories, World War II, Vietnam, any of these conflicts, and even, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq, they'll go back in, the bullets are flying, they'll go towards danger to, to pull a wounded comrade off the battlefield. Heavy, heavy stuff. Now, spiritual battle, let's move on to spiritual. Paul was a spiritual soldier. And again, bullets are flying, mortars are coming in, the devil's after him big time, trying to take him out, and what does he do? He goes back into the battlefield, and he helps his wounded comrades either to, to sew him up or bring him off the battlefield and help him to get better. Now, the difference is, life is precious. I agree with that. I believe that life is precious, but spiritual life is even more precious because it's eternal. So the consequences in a spiritual battle are far more heavy. There's far more implications in the spiritual battle than there is in the physical battle. That's important to know. Verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went to Atalia. Now the disciples, again, they were redoubling. Derby was the farthest of the first missionary journeys, the farthest east that they went. Then they went back over these cities, Lystra, all the way back to Italia, where they sailed eastward. And again, back into the lion's den. I'm going to go back into the cities where I was persecuted. They I could just picture Paul walking into some of these cities and them saying, man, well, this guy's brave. He's either brave or he's crazy. What's he doing back here? Remember what happened to you? We're going to give you a double dose of that. Again, think about what was going on at the time. 
He knew the dangers, but it was more important to finish the job. There's a lot of people not finishing the job today. They're not running the race to win. They're distracted. So many people with so many talents are distracted and they're pulling out of the race. Remember Paul likens the spiritual walk with running a race. Paul says we all run the race to win. There's a lot of people who are you know, running a race, maybe three-quarters of the way, maybe half of the way, and like, I'm tired, I'm going to go sit out. But see, when we run the race, we all lock arms together. That's the type of race we're in because we're the body of Christ. We're cohesive. And every time somebody drops out of the race, it causes a little bit of disturbance. And it's just a lot of that, and it's a shame. They trade the Lord's work for materialism. And I can't, I'm not going to stop speaking about materialism, especially in our country. I look at my own life, and I say, and then I see what happens on the mission field, and I'm like, I'm materialistic. You know what I'm saying? I'm always trying to check my heart. Because that's the way we live in this country. Not saying you shouldn't have heat and air conditioning and comforts, but we tend to be pamper ourselves with materialism. Selfishness, lusts, and fear. Fear is not of the Lord. And so many are trading the Lord's work for these things. And they give in to these things. But the brothers and sisters in these cities needed strength because the storms were coming. And the disciples redoubled and strengthened them. And secular history bears out that they did come. Now, remember, the area that we're speaking about is modern-day Turkey, okay? Now, just to give you a little bit of a picture of what I'm talking about, modern-day Turkey has a totally different face than it did 2,000 years ago. It is, uh, right, it's in the high 90s percentage-wise, 98% Muslim, probably because of the Ottoman Empire, and if you know your history, you'll know what I'm talking about. But God's will was accomplished for that time. Some may say, hey, that, that was a total loss. Look at, look at Turkey now. Where's the gospel? Where are those churches? It's not about, you know, well, this looks bad, that looks bad, so I don't want to get involved. But what it is, is what is God's will for that time? When we're in heaven and we see all the people that came out of Asia Minor, which was, you know, ancient Turkey, and we see all the fruit that happened and maybe the way it spread throughout that part of the world, we won't say that was a waste of time. We can't see with spiritual eyes, okay, what's happening in the temporal world that God is doing. Okay, we can never question his work. So my question for you is, what is God's will for you at this particular time? In five years, will we be here? Will we be, will be strong as a church? I don't know. Will we be raptured? Will something happen and the school kicks us out? I don't know. Will we have a building? Regardless, what is your job right now and what is God's will for you right now? Is it to save a failing marriage? Is it to bring a coworker to Christ? Is it to um, be praying for the leadership? I don't know. Only you know, you and God know. But God has something for you to do and me to do at this particular time. Verse 26. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. And when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And thus ends what's traditionally known as Paul's first missionary journey, which we covered over the last two chapters. They depart from Turkey and sail back to Syria and Antioch, which was in modern-day North Lebanon, Syria area. But what you see here, too, is accountability. Paul and Barnabas were accountable to the sending church in Antioch. They weren't Christian celebrities. They didn't have their own cable channel. They didn't have, you know, all the fanfare. They were accountable to the sending church. Now, we look at them, and in our mindset, 
if we were back then with our minds today, we would think these guys are celebrities. They are the cream of the crop of the Christian world. But they didn't look at themselves like that. They were accountable. They were servants of God. They were servants of the church. And they were accountable. Beware of anyone who is not accountable. I'll tell you a funny story that, looking back, a few years back, there was a sister who still goes to this fellowship. And after service, she came and she sat me down. She said, I want to talk to you. It was actually right back there. She said, who are you accountable to? And who are your elders accountable to? And who's the person that you're accountable to accountable to? (laughs) It was kind of funny. And I was able to answer, we do have accountability here. But um, you know what it was? Maybe I was a little put off at first, but you know, you always want to listen and, and, and hear what people have to say. But what it was was she came from a church where there was an indiscretion by a pastor and she wanted to make this church her home. And she wanted to know, before I make my home here with my family, who are you accountable to? And I applaud that. That was great. Um, and her family is a, a wonderful part of this fellowship. So compare and contrast how the disciples furthered God's will and how do we measure up? We have so much at our disposal as Americans. We have computers. Somebody told me that, um, or I read a statistic that said, and it might be an old statistic, that three-quarters of the, earth, the world's population doesn't have a telephone. And I found that, no, how can that be? Again, we're Western-minded. We're, everybody's got a phone. You know, your, your kids got cell phones and iPods and all these electronic devices that my kid could figure out, and I can't. So I have to go to him for help, or Josh. But the point is that we have so much at our fingertips. We have computers. We have advanced delivery systems. You know, I'm waiting for a, a part on my car, and it, it, like in one day it gets here. But it's from Michigan. How the heck does that happen? I don't know, but it's advanced uh, delivery systems, computers, um, communication systems. We have money. And, and I look at my life, and, you know, it's, I'm not a rich guy, but... Um, if, if I compare myself to three-quarters of the Earth's population, I am rich. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm incredibly wealthy compared to three-quarters of the Earth's population. And we have resources. We have all this at our fingertips as Americans. What are we doing with our resources? Are we furthering God's kingdom? Or are we feeding our flesh? Are we living carnally? So many Christians live pampered lives. They're pampering themselves. And it's so sad because many of them are getting the word. But it's just not settling in their hearts. The book of James, James says, don't just be a hearer of the word. Hey, that was a great message. Well, I feel really convicted. We can do about it. Nothing. Don't just be a hearer of the word, James says, but be a doer also. Do something. And many tend to look at Paul and Barnabas again and look at them as celebrities. It's good for them. They were gifted men. Remember, the only difference between us and them, if we're not doing anything, is they had an ability, they had a desire to serve the Lord because we all have abilities. And let me just say this. This is an important point. If you've got a pen, God will match desire with opportunity. God gave me that. God will match our desire with opportunity. If you really want to serve the Lord, he will put the time and the place, and it will be boom. You know, you can't mistake it. I'll tell you a quick, quick story, and then we'll, we'll kind of close up. I spent Christmas Day during the first part of the day preaching the gospel to two guys and had the pleasure of seeing two more souls come into the kingdom which was awesome. Now, I, I, you know, the Bible says, you know, some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. I find myself planting and watering, but, you know, I, I kind of missed, the, you know, seeing somebody come into Christ. Well, and I had the great pleasure. I actually was taken by surprise because towards the end of the night, they wanted to pray to receive Jesus. I didn't push them into it. 
It's kind of funny because uh, these guys were two big guys. The both of them together outweighed me like three to one. And they started off with excuses. And I get bold when, when it comes to the Word of God. And then I realize I'm, I'm a skinny guy and these guys are big. But I said, man, don't even go there. That's an excuse. I said, I tried that. It ain't going to hold up. And God, he's not going to take that excuse. One of the really big guys all of a sudden got quiet. And he had this look on his face. And he was pensive and thinking. Now, I thought he was figuring out how to crush me like a bug. But it turned out later that he was pondering salvation instead of how to pummel me, which I was very grateful for. Now, the bottom line is, I'm not a super evangelist. I'm really not. But I presented a desire. Christmas Day, I'm going to see my relatives, you know, leading people to the Lord. That was the furthest thing from my my mind. But actually, when I met them, I could tell that they didn't know the Lord and they were struggling. And in my mind, I all of a sudden started praying, Lord, give me an opportunity. And man, he gave me an opportunity. So, again, God will marry your desire with an opportunity. He will always do that. If you're really in prayer about how to do the Lord's will, he'll bring those two, and it'll be a love connection, definitely. So let's think about our lives and what we're living for. Is there any eternal substance to our lives, right? Is there any eternal substance to our lives? And what I want you to do is, you know, we talked about 2007, 2008. All it is is another day. It's another cycle. It brings us into what we call the new year. But I want you to pray about being challenged, I want you to pray, Lord, challenge me. I'm I'm getting this desire stirred up in me, and and I want to be challenged, Lord, and put an opportunity in my path. So, again, we think about a lot of things about the new year, but I want you to pray and ask the Lord, what opportunities will you put in my path for 2008? Let's pray.